This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Mike Missanelli podcast. What's well, a special podcast today because this is round two of an interview with the great Angelo Cataldi. And as you can see in the backdrop here, Angelo has a little different backdrop than we do here. He is in Napa, California, amongst the vines, which is a beautiful thing this morning. Angelo, how you doing? I'm doing great, Mike. All I've done for four days here is drink wine. Oh, my God. <laughs> They're nuts for wine in Napa Valley. Oh. Yeah, I've done that trip a couple of times before. I love it. It's such a serene place to be and uh first of all i didn't know you were a wine man that mm. you would tour the the napa vineyards I'm, I'm just looking for bargains mike none of the high-end stuff you know how it works <laughs> there's, a, there's no bargains when you go to those boutique wineries i can tell you that right now <laughs> uh but uh, this angelo i uh, so this is life now for you yeah. now i i assume that um and we're going to talk about the book and some things we have coming up this weekend together uh but are you now taking this time to travel this is this was my first trip so far. Honestly, we uh, the book uh, writing the book took a long time. Uh, getting through the edit took forever, uh, and so we kind of had this planned all along on the back end before the book came out. So we came here. We have another couple, and we're just um, touring wineries and enjoying the West Coast for a few days. It's really cool. Uh, well, but, so yeah, what this- wineries have impressed you the most? Because wow. there's so many out there. We went to a castle yesterday um, where it was really incredible. And, and they took you into the catacombs of this uh, castle where they store all the wine. And I mean, it's like, you know, gold out here. These people love this stuff. And, and you, know, you try a $500 bottle of wine. And Mike, I'll be honest with you. It tastes like a $10 bottle of wine. I can't tell the difference. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm, well, I'm you know what as, as your palate as you now start to drink the wines at napa your palate will get probably more sophisticated and you'll be able to tell the difference uh let me recommend a winery out there for you okay it's called uh hall vineyards okay h-a-l-l it's run by a family and right. uh, they i'm telling you they produce a cabernet that's like gold silk yeah yeah it's, it's called Catherine hall she's the matriarch of, of the whole winery but I, I highly recommend that. We'll um, do. We'll do. We're looking for stuff. Yeah. That sounds and great. So when you come back, you know, I'm a part owner of a winery in Cape May, Courthouse, New Jersey. Oh, I did Natale not. Called Vineyard. So when you and Gail get back, uh, I would hope that you would visit our winery as well and have some nice wines. Well, as long as it's free, you know, Mike, it's I'll not, be there. It's absolutely, it's absolutely <laughs> free. All right. Let, let's talk about the book. And, and the book is called Loud. Right. How a shy nerd came to Philadelphia and turned up the volume in the most passionate sports city in America. First of all, did you get paid by the word in the title? No, the thing was, the t- I had a different title and they changed it. I had How a Nerd from Rhode Island did that. And they said, no one from Rhode Island reads books. 
you have to get Philadelphia into a title. So they kind of tweaked it. I go by the one word, loud, because I think it represents uh, my 33 years of radio. All right, so this is amazing, because I talked to you through this whole process, and you said you are going to write a book. You wrote it in lightning speed. And uh, the most amazing thing to me, I think when you're away from writing for a really long time, most people, it would take a while to get back into the swing. But you clicked it on like like nothing. So uh, tell me about that whole process. Well, Mike, it was uh, honestly that whole process was part of a it was a business decision as much as anything, because um, I wanted the book out the same year I retired. And I knew that, uh, you know, when the Eagles were eliminated from the Super Bowl, they lost Super Bowl. I had I had already structured the book. I kind of knew what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. And um, the publisher, I only found one publisher. I went to a lot of different places. I found a publisher in Chicago, Triumph, which was willing to turn it around fast enough. By, by February of a year, most publishing houses know what they're going to publish that year. And they said, we, we will add you to it, but we need the book in about two months. And I was going along so quickly that I went, I, all right, I'll try to do that. And it, it, it wrote itself. You know, when you're writing, I mean, Mike, you did it for so many years in the newspaper business before you wrote books. Some of them just write themselves. Others, you've got to really you know, bleed to get it out. But this one just wrote itself. And I had a structure ahead of time. So I just followed that structure. And uh, six and a half, seven weeks later, the book was done. Uh, it's, it's truly amazing to me. So once you sat down, to actually write with a keyboard like the old days, it just flowed out of you. Boom. Yeah. It, it, you know what it was like? Uh, the stuff, there were chapters where I, I'm just ripping the people I hated the most in sports in my 33 years. Um, I already kind of knew what I was going to say there, Mike. I said it for 33 years. You know, Gabe Kapler's in the book, right? Like, mm -hmm. Funny story. This is the best. All right. So we arrive in San Francisco on Friday. And would you know the route to take to get to Napa Valley goes right by Safeco Stadium. Now, in my 33 years, the guy I hated the most in Philadelphia sports was Gabe Kapler because he was super weird and he didn't give a damn about ever bothering to tell the truth. He was just awful. And, Mike, I believe as we were passing Safeco Stadium, Gabe Kapler was inside. Listen, right at on the street, in the building that we looked into, Gabe Kapler was being fired. It's it's a highlight of my life. It's so it's it's so exciting to know. After all these years, you did have an influence on getting him canned twice. Well, actually, he knew I hated him. But Mike, can you imagine if just at that moment he looked out the window and I was lurking out there in the car, and he goes, "What the hell's that jerk doing here?" But, but to back back to, I mean, a lot of the stuff, Mike, a lot of the stuff that um, that's in the book is stuff that I said for many years. So it wasn't all that hard to call it back up. The thing that really amazed me and, and um, I hope you write one, too, because I know you're a great writer. and You got a lot of terrific stories to tell. They have a fact check process. Right. And you they go through everything that's in the book with a fine tooth comb. And then they give you an edit. The first edit, even before they go through the words, is the facts. And I was stunned to find out how many things I was repeating over and over again during my 33 years 
that were not factually accurate, right? A lot, a, a lot of things that I remembered one way and then I would just keep saying them were not exactly as I thought they were. <laughs> you're talking about a million stories in your career that must have been quite an editing process remember all right let me ask, let me test you on this in 2005 super bowl the eagles ran against uh bill belichick and the patriots mm-hmm. remember the long drive where at one point belichick asked his assistants is that score right we're up 10 and they're taking all this time in the drive yeah. how long do you think that drive lasted how long? I said eight minutes. I, I said it the month, the week after it happened, and then I said it for the next 17 or 18 years. Um, it was four, and, four minutes and change. <laughs> and when they wow. said this to me, I went, no, no, that it's eight minutes. I've been saying it for 20 years. Yeah. Our, our perception. <laughs> some, well, perception they showed sometimes. me the play sheet. I was wrong. <laughs> Yeah, the perception sometimes gets ahead of us. But I remember in the old days, so we were all writers and we all hated the editors that would change our copy and do things like that. How'd you react to that? Um, (laughs) They were more delicate in the editing of the words, so it wasn't so big a deal. But I guess um, it it made me um, mature at a very late age and say that maybe it is important that the editors be there so that I don't screw everything up. But I, I write stuff off now, Mike, just as senility. You know, I go, well, you know, I'm sure 10 years ago I wouldn't be that stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. We, we were all rammy back then, thinking that we were uh, the God's gift. Uh, first of all, let me announce that Angelo and I will both be appearing this Saturday. This is exciting for me at the Collingswood Book Festival. So I have a children's book out, and you're going to be displaying your book there as well? Yeah, I got a session at one o'clock there. I'm very honored that they uh, invited both of us to it. And um, I was really happy about that because I'm going to do a session to talk about the book and uh, hand out samples, uh, sample uh, chapters for it. I don't have the whole book yet. It's still being printed. And then we got a session together, which I'm very much looking forward yes, to. Yes, we are doing a Q&A at three o'clock at the Collingswood Book Festival. So uh, that's a big deal out there. I've never been to it. Uh, but I'm excited to be there. So, um, Angelo, you can see both Angelo and I, if you want to come out to the Collingswood Book Festival uh, this Saturday. I, my book, I think 11 o'clock is when I'm displaying my book. and It'll be a little later, and I'll just hang out and wait for the, uh, for the Q&A. So, so share some details that you can of the book as a tease here on, on some of the best stories that you were involved in, because you were involved in a ton right. of great stories. Which ones floated to the top of your head right away? Well, they floated to the top of the book because I realized you want to put some of your big stuff out front. So um, I covered the booing of McNabb in the 1999 draft because that's probably the thing we're most remembered for. So I told the whole story of what happened with those drunk idiots that went there that day and thought Ricky Williams was going to be picked and he wasn't. And, and that was kind of awkward. <laughs> and and um, I, I told the story of... Um, a guy in 1993, we were ju- I was just trying to do that radio job with Al Morgani and Tony Bruno after Tom Brookshire had left. And um, we held a, a 15-hour pregame show. And we were in a tent the whole day. In fact, I'm not sure if you were with us yet, Mike, no, but that was... I wasn't that there was, for that one. It was a sick day. And <laughs> in the final hour of, of that tent show, where there was no security like there would be today and lawyers were not all that interested in what we were doing. Some jackass showed up 
it, it was the Cowboys were the opponent on a Monday night game. And um, he showed up with a blow-up doll dressed as Troy Aikman. All right. And I said, all right, well, he's probably going to you know, mangle it or do something to it. And the crowd's going to go nuts because, man, by that point, it's, it's after eight at night. And these people are tanked. I mean, they are just drunk as drunk could be. And this guy, um, no one noticed it. I guess it wasn't a big one. He pulls out a chainsaw. Now, those tents were, the bodies were compressed. It was tight. It was was horrible. And he's got a chainsaw, and he's going to decapitate the the blow-up doll with Troy Aikman. And that's going to be a big moment in the tent. But but <laughs> clearly he had not thought through what would happen when a chainsaw hit a, a balloon. <laughs> and it... He, he went for it, the crowd screaming, and it goes to lop off the head. And the minute the chainsaw hits the, the you know, the outside of the doll, the doll pops, and the chainsaw goes flying. And it, it lands on the wrist of his cousin who is holding the doll, right? <laughs> and and um, it severed, we were told, if the thing didn't jam when it hit, it would have completely removed the man's hand from his arm. <laughs> but in, in the it's end, a tragedy, but we we're laughing at it because it's so absurd with some of the fan behavior that we've experienced. But I, I remember that so vividly that the guy got uh, hurt. And the first thing yeah. I wondered is, is there liability on the station? They bankrupt the station here. Um, I checked on that. I'm pretty sure the statute of limitations went up. You're the lawyer, Mike, not me. Well, I'm talking <laughs> saying at the time, like you know, people were so litigious that that's the first thing I thought about. Oh my God, there's some liability right. here that we well, allowed the guy were, to bring a chainsaw in. They were but drunk, and, and so now the guy's got blood coming out of his arm. And um, you know, rather than rush to the hospital, which you would normally do, he holds his arm up, and there's blood rolling down it, and the crowd, ah. Oh, you you fed blood to this crazed <laughs> drunk crowd. It was just it was just so amazing. I, it was I'll never forget it because it was the dumbest thing I've ever seen, start to finish. And these guys walked into the building. He had a tourniquet around his around his arm as he walked in. Here's a limo driver named Dominic Yanni. I actually got to know him a little bit, and 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 it was a badge of honor. It was like this was the vet. <laughs> This was the nineties. He, he almost was. Mike, it's just that's the drunken, insane behavior that was the seven hundred level of that yeah. era. So he actually went to the game. Yes, he did not go to the <laughs> hospital. He went to the game, and then for years after, he brandished the scar as this great thing that had happened. Oh my god! <laughs> uh, give me an interaction with. Uh, maybe a, a player or, or a coach or a general manager that stuck out to you after all those years? Oh, I, I had a lot of bad interactions. I didn't have, have a lot of good ones. Um, the one that sticks out is, is the year that I was, um, and in the book I acknowledge this because one of the things that's on my resume is that I was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 1986 when I worked at the Inquirer. Mm -hmm. And I do cover those years also. And I was assigned to cover Buddy Ryan. And Buddy Ryan did nothing every day but lie. He would just come out and say whatever he thought the crowd wanted to hear. 
And um, at the midway point in the season, I asked for a week off to do an analysis of how Buddy was doing. At the time, they were three and five, I think. And uh, and none of, you know, he had said they were going to win every division game. They hadn't won any. And um, I did a very journalistic piece analyzing um, what a horse's ass he was and how wrong he was. And uh, it came out, it got a big reaction. Um, and now I have to go on the Monday to see the coach, before, you know, and, and he has now heard about this thing that I wrote. So it comes a moment when um, it's, I got to get a question and I got to test the waters. So I don't remember what I asked him. And Mike, it was like, um, I was not there. And as you know, knowing me, a rather large geeky uh, persona, uh, to ignore me, to act like I was not physically there. And he maintained that for pretty much the entire last half of that season in 1986. And um, I, I realized pretty early on that, that there was not anything that I was going to be missing out on because I was still going all to the regular news conferences. I just never really got to ask a question. So but you, it was you, like, never, you never asked a question from that point, or he would just ignore your question? I would uh, Occasionally I would to see if he was warming up. Um, I do not recall that he ever warmed up. So I never really got a question in for the last half of that season because he hated me so much. But uh, years later, it's funny how years later you don't seem like as much a threat to these people, and they kind of patch things up. He came on our show a few times after that, and he was um, actually kind of charming. But back then, you know, it was intense. He was losing. Um, I was trying to hold him accountable. What, what I never realized, and the reason why I didn't deserve that Pulitzer, and I'm glad I didn't get it, is because, well, I, I'm glad I didn't get it, too, because then I never would have gone into radio. Yeah, you can't do that if you went to Pulitzer. Yeah. you got to be a serious journalist your whole life. But the other reason is because he was right and I was wrong. Like, he knew what he was doing. He was He was manipulating the fan base and getting them more and more excited about his football team. And I was trying to put a damper on that. And as you know, because you experienced it like I did, Mike, that's when Eagle interest went up a level. His, yeah. his five years, even though he didn't win any, any playoff game, he, he knew how to get people more into the team. And um, he wins, I lose. I lose on that because uh, – it took me years to finally realize that what he was doing was great for the city. Uh, just a couple of piggybacks on that. Uh, what did the, how did the inquire respond to you getting frozen out? Did they think that that was going to hamper your coverage? Um, no, they just said, keep asking questions from time to time. Um, we're very impressed with the journalists we have covering the team. <laughs> oh, that, that's, that's solid. Uh, so yeah, they and, thought it was great. What, that story brings up, I think, uh, the dichotomy between the, the, the reporter of our era and, and even before me, you, uh, and now. Because uh, we were just programmed to get the truth no matter if we offended. And it's not like that anymore because now they have control and they freeze you out and they deny you access. But we were programmed in a different way. We didn't. We had one mission: get the truth, and somebody's lying. Expose it, and it was just our training, and and that wouldn't fly today. No, Mike, you're a hundred percent right. People will hear like how you know 
we had kind of like an we were alienated from the people we were covering and we would not hesitate to alienate ourselves further with a question that really annoyed them i don't see much of that anymore there's more of a partnership now you know and but but we we got into an unusual situation when we were at the wip still trying to do some of that Mm -hmm. and wip had a business partnership with the eagles they were doing the games so if you did something on the air or you asked the wrong question to somebody on the air you would get some feedback like your business partner's not happy. And, you know, I fought that for a lot. And I'm sure you did, too. I know you. Yeah. You you had well, something yeah. you wanted I mean, to get. Joe Banner was a regular it. caller to the front uh, office of, of WIP. Uh, and he was the worst. You know that. He, yeah. he was just such a – and he would try to work back channels to get you in trouble. But in the end, you know, uh, this, uh, I'll say this, the, the, the newspaper um, – to the time I left, um, they supported me on that kind of approach, and they wanted that kind of approach. Now I don't think they would. I think it would be a whole different way to go about yeah, things. Things have changed. Uh, who was the most intriguing subject that you ever talked to? That you made said where you said, "Yeah, this guy's got it together. He's smart. Uh, I admire him. He tells the truth." Was did anybody stand out? Oh God, yeah. Um, and, and it's current, and it's it's Jason Kelsey. Jason Kelsey um, is an extraordinary player in our city because he's great, number one. He's won a championship, which checks a big box. And he truly connects with the fan base. And I'll tell you, Mike, he tells the truth. He, you ask him a question, he gives you an answer. You know, they just did this documentary. And I had not even realized that this had happened, but... Um, Kelsey last season was like, he was one of the big forces in their run to the Super Bowl. And there was a week they had a terrible game. And I came out on the Monday. I didn't even know it. I'm watching at the, I'm watching with Kelsey, his family, this large contingent of people. And I come on and I go, "Um, well, Jason Kelsey proved yesterday, A, he's not good all the time. And B, um, he was a lousy leader on the field too. And I attacked him last year and and the thing about it was later in the week um he acknowledged it all he didn't back off one bit he had had a terrible game and he acknowledged it and and he didn't fight back like try to re-spin it so it wasn't so bad he has been in in all these years we've been here i guess this is 13th season he has been the person you want to hear speak because he'll actually tell you what he experienced and do it with honor and respect. And I don't know anyone who comes close to that in the 33 years. That's He's the one. Has there ever been a coach that was like that or close yeah. to that? Yes. Yes. Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson, I always feel like he got the worst deal in, in all the years I was there. Um, there was a time we had Doug on. After um, a game, it was a tie game against Cincinnati. And um, this, I think, was right after the year after the Super Bowl. And um, after they won it. And he came out and I said to him, Doug, there was a fourth down play near midfield with a few seconds left to go. And you punted. That's not, you know, that's not Doug Peterson. Doug Peterson's a risk taker. And he stops and he goes, you know, I've been worried. I've been thinking about that all night. And, and, and if I had to do it again, 
I would have gone for mm. it. Now, you know Al Morgandi, our old buddy. Yes. And he's sitting across from us. Al was not as committed to athletes or sports figures telling the truth as as I was. And Al got this look on his face like, no, don't don't admit this. Don't show your weakness. Don't do this. And um, we went to break. And Al said, I can't believe he did that. And and I went, you can't believe he did it. He told you the truth. He, he, he rethought it. This is news. We have news. This is great. Said, I would never, I would never admit to that. I would never. No, you, you can't show weakness like that when you're a coach. But Doug Peterson for five years did nothing but tell us the truth. Yeah. And, and he had done it after 14 years of nothing but BS from Andy Reid and then Chip Kelly and all his garbage. And um, he was so refreshing. He was such a nice man. And the fact that he won our only Super Bowl is not the hero that Reid is. Mike, he's not as big a hero yeah. in this town as Andy Reid, yeah. who was 0 for 14. I don't get it. But people judge Andy Reid on what he's done after he left here instead of what he did here. Well, yeah. So let me ask you about Andy Reid. You had to put up with him for a really long time. Oh, uh, so I hated what it. Was, what was your impression, that, that he was a phony? Oh, the biggest. <laughs> biggest phony I ever dealt with, ever. In my life, my, the biggest phony. He would say, um, he would not answer any questions. He developed a robotic um, approach to questions. So he would, if they lost the game, I got to do a better job. If they won the game, uh, this guy did was great, and this guy, Donovan, oh, my God. Uh, and it was never, there was never any illumination to what had happened. There was no reason for him ever to hold a news conference because he was not there to give the fans any information. And then every once in a while, he would stop and do like a tribute to how amazing these fans are. <laughs> well, if you respect them that much, how about once a week you answer a question honestly? He didn't do it. He was, you dealt with the same cuts every week as I did, Mike. And it was just a big puddle of bull. And I hated him and I still can't stand him. And he, you know, at the end, at the very end, when I'm retiring, they're going to get um, little tributes. And somebody had the lame brain idea to ask Reed, do you know he did it? And he was no more sincere. <laughs> And wishing me well and acknowledging my career than he was in anything else well, he ever did he as the coach of the Eagles. <laughs> Not once. Well, he was he lied to the very end. You know what's uh, here's the funny part. I, I've been conditioned over the years to know that everybody in sports lies. And so I go, I I I snicker at it and I go, okay, it's a lie. You seem to be personally offended by it. I am. <laughs> Where does I, I that am. come from? Columbia University. Uh, when when I got my graduate degree in journalism there, I had a um, I had an advisor, and I went in there very early on, and I acknowledged to him that my dream was to bring journalism to sports, and he blanched. He he hated the idea. He said, "We're not you're not coming to Columbia. We're we're getting managing editors out of here. We're getting foreign correspondents out of here. We're getting best selling authors out of here." We're not getting people covering stupid sports teams. So he swore me to secrecy, Mike. And he said, you could do this. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it if it's what you really want. But don't ever divulge this to anyone. And make me one promise. If you are going to cover sports with the education we're about to give you at this school, cover sports the way you would if you were covered the White House 
or you were covered City Hall? Ask hard questions. Be journalistic about it. Hold them accountable. And I did that. I, I, that lesson stuck. And I did that for a lot of the years. We weren't really doing journalism in WIP. But when we were doing an interview, we kind of were. You know, we were trying to get the information out. And um, I always asked hard questions that way because that was the training of it. But, um, but I just, you know what it was? It's like, why are you holding a news conference if you're going to lie? You know, but, but I mean, it, since you're here and we're here, how about you give the fans some insight into what they just watched? That's where a columnist comes in, where a columnist goes, yeah. what he just said is bullshit. <laughs> but, yeah. but, and you, exactly. you, don't, you don't see that anymore. You saw it back in the day. I understand Hockman would do it uh, yeah. uh, all the time. And, but uh, you, you just yeah. don't see that anymore. Uh, here, here's the question about your, your preparation for anything, really whether it was uh, at the Inquirer or, or radio, has always been impeccable. Now, you just revealed that lesson to Columbia, but there's got to be more than that. There's got to be a, a, a drive. Like, for me, it was like, when I broke in, I'm covered in high school field hockey games. And it's like, you just got to you, you gotta work through all of this and, and, and make your preparation impeccable so people will, will see it. So, so where does that drive come from, aside from people telling you how you had to be? Fear. Fear of having to make decisions in the moment. I would not have been a good quarterback calling audibles at the line of scrimmage because I didn't. It's like I'm getting heat out here in Napa Valley this week for my wife because we'll go to a restaurant. But I never pick up the menu. I never pick up the menu. And she goes, what are you doing? And I go, I already checked it out online and I know what I'm ordering. It's prep. <laughs> <laughs> That's ridiculous. You got to do really to be, to be that prepared is ridiculous. I'm, I'm not lying. No, I'm not lying. It's driving her insane. But but anyway, um, but but I would always be afraid whenever I did any interview. I would be afraid I'd run out of questions. I'd be afraid in a four-hour show that I would run out of topics. Um, so I would over-prepare every show. I would over-prepare every interview. I would constantly. It wasn't done um, because I wanted to be meticulous about it. It was done because I didn't want to look like an idiot in the moment when suddenly I didn't have something ready and, and you know, ready to set it out. So, and Brookie, I mean, you, you and Dick Tom Brookshire, who, who's a, a world-class athlete who had his number retired by the Eagles, 25-year um, career as an analyst on CBS, and he would come in at 4 in the morning when we were working together and he would have reams of topics and he had a yellow pad with lots of legal legal pad with all sorts of stuff on it. And he would probably not get to half of it. Tom Brookshire did it. I watched Tom Brookshire do it. I went, if Tom Brookshire is doing that, I better do as much as him and more because he knows way more than I do. But that's kind of where I got to see it in, in practice in radio. And um, I followed it. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm telling you, we, we always marveled at, uh, at your preparation because, you know, I handled it like, okay, I'm going to go in. I have an idea and I can, I can kind of wing it from here and let and play with the callers. And that's how I, I would get through a show. I wasn't nearly as prepared as you were. But, but, it, but you could do it. Yeah. See, you had, you had a lawyer's background, so you could, you could take any topic and analyze it really well and add a little flavor to it and that kind of thing. Um, 
I had to kind of write all that stuff down ahead of time. <laughs> Let me ask you about this because I get this question a lot about our careers. And uh, people always say, is that really you? Like, they always want to find out who the real person is. They, they, and, and I've given this a lot of thought. And I go, you know what? When I got out of that booth, I was really more uh, introverted and quiet. And it maybe because I, huh. I just didn't have any words left and I was exhausted. But uh, something about that booth changed me. And, and so, like, can you put your finger on what that is? That's that's a really, Mike, I've been dealing with that since retirement because what I, what I can see now better than I could in all the years I did it was somehow over time in the early years of doing radio, it was a persona. You, you, you created someone who is more interesting than you are, more flamboyant than you are more humorous than you are and it, what happened to me i'm actually seeing a therapist i'm seeing dr joe fish now to work this through all right because over time when you do something as long as we did the persona you created and your actual personality start to uh, blend they start to come together and you're not sure anymore where one it you know starts and the other ends and you it's very hard to figure out who you really are at that point and um and, 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 but i am totally different than the person i was now now more than ever i am um anti, i'm not good socially at all i'm awful i'm highly inept and yet on the air i feel like i created a pretty good bond with callers and how did i do that because i it wasn't in me if i went to a wedding i would sit in the corner i wouldn't i wouldn't dance i wouldn't talk i wouldn't do anything and yet on the air i is you know i was very outgoing and that kind of stuff i guess you know mike i just think that if you're really committed to, to your career you're going to create on the air whatever is most interesting so that you'll get the good ratings that keep you in your job and you get all the rewards from it and um yeah, none of us, we were all newspaper guys who came over to WIP. Were any of us that exciting personalities at the radio and had these personas that we created? I don't think so. I think we I, all I guess had to not. Do it. I, I, I don't know. I, you know, in that booth, you feel so protected from the outside world that you feel yep. you can say anything. Yep. And and there, there are no ramifications for it except if you cross the line. I remember having a, a fight with David Akers on the air. And I, and I, and people said, that was terrible the way I traded him. And I, and yeah. I, I didn't feel any remorse at the time yeah. that is yeah. the way I treated him. Like I was, he, I said, he's fortunate enough to be on my show. I didn't look at it the other <laughs> way around. And now you look at it and go, well, I guess I was rude there. Yeah. But see, Mike, the thing is that wasn't actually Mike Missinelli being rude to him. It was the guy you created for the purposes of an exciting and interesting show. So you know, I don't know if people appreciate that though. They say, "Well, that's phony, right?" That's, they say, "Well, that's phony." That if you had to create another character, that's not that's phony. And I would, and, and they're accurate with that. But if they really, I mean, Mike, you spent a little time with me when I wasn't on the air. I wouldn't have lasted three weeks if I had used my own personality. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, that wouldn't. I mean, I actually did that when we used to do the morning sports page. And um, it wasn't working out all that well until you got a little more flamboyant, a little more fun. Uh, and then you just got into it more. And pretty soon you weren't sure 
if that wasn't actually who you were. You know, of all the things that we've done, the great sports debate always stands out to me. And I know that was your creation and Al's creation and Glenn's uh, creation. Um, uh, like, uh, How was that idea hashed and how, how did it come to fruition where we actually got on television to do it? Yeah, I actually did uh, handle this um, on the air. In fact, I, I remember yeah, I use a word to describe you because you came right after we started it. And I said, and then we added to our show the telegenic Mike Mizzanelli. <laughs> like, like we looked around and we went, we better get somebody on there who looks good. <laughs> but, but the way it started was Glenn Macnow. Glenn Macnow um, got to meet uh, Rotfeld, a guy that was Rotfeld. He had been doing He's a lot Steve of Rotfeld. Yeah, yeah, blue blooper shows and stuff like that. Yeah, and and Glenn pitched it, and Glenn is a very convincing pitcher. And everybody was looking for sports programming then. And this sports radio format was a couple of years into being. And they decided to give us a shot at it. And um, and and I guess because I was doing the morning show, you guys were just jumping over the radio. Um, they made me the host. But um, I was, A, not cut out for TV. And B, um, I, I was totally in over my head. And we come for the first show. And it was me and Al and and glenn and jason stark i think on the first one and they had me in the front shot and then the three guys were in the background on the set and i was like in front of it and i had to remember four teases the eagles won on sunday what will happen next there's some stuff like that and then there'd be like a sounder in it and i they we, we the show was so cheap we didn't have um, cue cards Right. So I had to remember, I had to memorize this stuff, but I had just done a four hour show and then drove to Exton. A lot of these shows we did in Exton, Pennsylvania. And Mike, I never once could get it right. Just do the four line. I never once. So <laughs> we finally get through it. And the next week, suddenly we're all doing one topic from the thing because the host couldn't handle the open of the show. <laughs> But, but you evolved with that right. and, this, and see this is a dichotomy because no, you're out now it, that's in public uh, that that's performing in front of a camera that's different right. than radio so you adapted to that quite well so that's that's the dichotomy mm. with your personality well i guess I, I i didn't adapt all that well the show was it had a camp value to it i think more than any quality <laughs> no, but, but we got, you know what i we got, got hired to do a broadway type of show with it i know we did a, in a ballroom of- but but what I sensed, Mike, was that um, Jason Stark, who had, I think, overall, he wasn't doing a radio show like we were. I think he realized fairly early on that it wasn't a great career move for him because he was on ESPN. And that's when you moved. You got a lot more. You were on much more after yeah. that. because. And the other thing was you loved to stir up trouble. Like a, that, we had some great blowouts on on topics and stuff because yeah, we did. That was you the, were. Uh, it was fun. It was like the show, really. You know what it was? It was almost like we took the whole WIP primetime package and we put them all together on television for ten years. Yeah. And it got a lot. Even to this day, people stop me and say, "Oh, the thing I thought you guys did the best was the morning. It was the uh, uh, the TV show." And I go. Yeah, really. And there is actually it's amazing. A it's amazing it, how that yeah. show resonates with people. That's the reason I brought it up. But let me I, I don't know if I talked to you, to you this the first time we talked about, but the, the, the show that sticks out 
is the OJ show. Oh, where oh, we we taped the whole show waiting for the verdict. Yep. And and so because uh, that was going to be the A segment, we taped the rest yep. of the show. We didn't. We thought sure that it was going to be a guilty verdict. And uh, here it comes out. And I remember you flipping out like oh, I've never seen you flip out before. Moron. Mike, I'll never look at if there's any video of it. Please, I never want to see it because we we were doing the show in an auto dealership. <laughs> and we we said, well, the, the verdict's coming out at this time. Let's do the whole show, and then we'll just tack on the front end of it. And you're right. Every one of us is waiting to see guilty. And when it's not guilty, we can't believe this. And I'm, oh, Mike, we were we were on within a minute, right? They said well, we yeah. got to get this out. We got to we got to do this quick because we had to turn around and we'd go out on TV that night. And we were. Oh, I mean, you want raw emotion and anger and frustration, yelling and screaming. I, I'm, I'm positive of all the stupid things I did in all the years of broadcasting. That was probably my my worst moment. But in the but you wanted raw passion. You were mad too, right? You were freaking out. I think you get that. You were so uh, mad that I I said anything I say here would. Would, would would be diluted, you know. I, so I kind of like let you ha- handle that whole thing, and because your outrage was so visceral that we, I, I just stepped back and watched you. You know what else too, though? You're a lawyer. I mean, you have legal background. You, probably yeah, I was looking at it to... like a lawyer too, with a reasonable yeah. doubt and why the verdict yeah. would happen like that. And but yeah. you had your raw emotion when that was in there. Yeah. Was, no, it, I'm it sorry you tough. brought it up. I, I wish you hadn't brought it up because now I'm going to feel bad about it for a few weeks. <laughs> well, listen, there's a lot of stuff we had to feel bad about in our careers. Let me just. You're not uh, kidding. It let me, so let me close with that. I want to play a little word association game with you with some sure. people. Uh, uh, but first, before I get to that, quickly on, on the team's outlooks right now, mm. uh, as we go down the line, you get the Phillies starting the playoffs tonight. The Eagles are uh, on another run. It looks pretty good. And then it drops off. So to talk to me first about about the, the Phillies. Phillies, um, I would be surprised if they have the magic run like they did a year ago. It seemed like that was incredible. Um, and, you know, I think they'll probably be able to get by the first round against Miami. But Atlanta this year is an amazing baseball team. And um, if they get by Atlanta, God bless them. That's, that would be a hell of a thing. I think Atlanta is where it ends for them. The Eagles are perplexing the heck out of me. Mike, they're 4-0, and I'm watching the fourth quarter of the game against Washington that they somehow won. The last few minutes of that game were coached with no logic whatsoever. And when you have a game in hand, you're running the ball. The other team is running out of timeouts, and you have a great field goal kicker. All you need to do is get yourself in position take it down to the last few seconds of the game and kick the field goal and win the game. And Nick Sirianni thought it was brilliant to throw a deep ball to, to uh, what's his name, number 11, and um, and AJ he, Brown. AJ Brown, and AJ Brown catches it for a touchdown, and thereby you know, Washington has a minute and a half with a timeout left to come back and beat you with a defense that's been shaky all day. That's stupid, right? And, and it makes me think that these coaches – are not as good as the talent they're coaching. Cause, and, and then he comes out the next day and he says, uh, I would do it all again. 
You go, yeah, well, that's, that's a lot. It. That's <laughs> you no, think so it's here's a lot? the thing. I think in that situation, he's coming around for his quarterback. But you're right about the coaching. The co- the quarterback should have been coached not oh to call God. a check because he, he called a check. He's yeah. single coverage. Okay. So the Don't. quarterback has to be coached not to do something like that. Exactly. So and and I just the, and the defense, I mean, the, how many times does the defense need to make one play and they're not making it? It's like the end of last season. Um uh, I, the Eagles are 4-0, but they don't feel like a 4-0 team to me. I don't think they're going to see the Super Bowl this year. The um, the Sixers um, have a mess on their hands because James Harden, they're somehow feeling that James Harden in some way is going to, whether he comes back or not, he's not going to make him a champion. They're, they're, he's, he's a loser. Uh, they keep thinking he's going to do more than he's capable of. And Bede, another year of Embiid's career is about to be thrown away. And I think the Flyers will probably win the Cup this season because my friend Keith Jones is the president now. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> and I'm really hard for We all like him. Uh, I, right, we quick, all would quick, love quick to see him association. Um, yep. Jeff Lurie. Um, pompous, self-important. But one of the better owners in sports <laughs> just goes to tell you the low bar for owners, right? He's really, oh, when he talks, it's like, you know, that he's handing down tablets. Uh, this is this is gospel. This is gold. But um, I've never been a big fan. And in the book, I talk about um, 25, really a 25 year feud. You know, he's never been on a show yeah. since the very first year. Because uh, he did not like uh, sports radio, especially the way we did it. Yep. Um, Josh Harris. Josh Harris is um, – his scoreboard is not the one that's up in the arena or the uh, stadium where he's in. His scoreboard is his ledger sheet. He <laughs> is the ultimate hedge fund operator money guy. And if Washington or the Sixers or, or the Devils or the other entities that he owns in sports think that they've got a guy who's committed to winning, they're not reading it right. He's just about the money. Um, Jim Fregosi. Huh. The late Jim Fregosi. Yes. Um, I just thought, look, we had some of our ugliest moments with Jim, and some of them were my fault, and a lot of them were his fault. Um, he, Macho Row was his creation because he was this rough old John Wayne cowboy type of guy. And, um, uh, underneath it all, I found him petty and annoying. And, um, I, I, you know, he never did win it here. And, um, that doesn't surprise me. All right, let's go to a couple of people you worked with. First of all, Al Morganti. Well, a lot of people don't know what makes him tick. You know better than anybody. <laughs> so, well, I've been out. I've, I've been out about nine months now since I retired. I did encounter him one time at a thing that we did uh, for like a flower a flyers boot camp with Keith Jones, our old partner. Um, Al is, you'll never meet anyone like him in your life. He he genuinely. Um, he is. He never created a persona on the air. That's who he is, 100%. He, um, 
He's smarter than all of us. He's smarter than I ever was. He made most of the biggest and most important decisions for our show in all the years that we did it. And there was never a point where he embraced either the careers that we had taken, radio. He never made the full commitment to it that we did. And, and, and he never made the full commitment to Philadelphia that we did. He still loves his hometown of Boston. Al was able to do the great job that he did without being 100% in on radio or on all the other stuff. And he still did that. He's Mike, the ultimate, when, ultimate survivor. When all, uh, Mike, when all is said and done, he was probably the smartest, most talented guy. But he had different priorities. Yeah, he did. Uh, all right, I gotta, I gotta bring this name up just because people want me to bring it up. Probably Howard Eskin. Howard Eskin. You know, we all have a debt to Howard because Howard really showed how to do sports talk radio in Philadelphia the right way, and that is take no prisoners, et cetera, et cetera. And he did it great. And I, I know he had a major influence on the way I did the job. Um. I guess where we uh, diverted in our paths was that he got to a point where he didn't give, he wouldn't give you a negative opinion about the Eagles because he had a tight affiliation with them. And um, the Eagles are the lifeblood of our, of what we did for all those years. And he should have stayed hardcore on everyone and not, develop some of the opinions that he did based on the access he was given or um, the way the teams treated him. See, one of the things I did, Mike, and I, he thinks it's awful that I did it, I didn't affiliate myself in any way with the teams once I was doing radio because I wanted the freedom to say exactly what I said and not worry about what they would try to do to get me back. I didn't feel that he did that the way that we did. And that's the no, one thing I'd say against him. But he, I, look, you work with him a lot more than I did. Yeah, well, I don't know if he was a team I mean, guy. I, I, I was there watching Andy Reid pat him on the head. Uh, yeah, and, I, uh, I hated that stuff. Like that, that was the stuff with Howard that drove me crazy because even to this day, he preaches the gospel of the Philadelphia Eagles. If it's a bad season, it doesn't sound so bad when he's doing it. If it's a good season, it sounds like they're all going to the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Um, but I admire him and respect him. If you, honestly, more so now than at any point in the time I worked there, because he was the pioneer. He did it first, and he did it damn well for a real long time. Yeah, I have a psychological analysis on why he is like that. <laughs> which I will write in my book. When, when I hope you write that book, Mike, because I want to go to another book fair. <laughs> All right. So, Andrew, listen, I appreciate it. People always love when, when you come on the show. The one we did before was, you know, the people still talk about it. But Angelo and I will be at the Collingswood Book Festival this Saturday. Uh, and uh, you're, you're, you'll be at 1 o'clock with your book. I'll be at 11 right. o'clock with my children's book. And I don't know how I wrote a children's book, but it just I did. Uh, and then we'll do a Q&A at 3 o'clock at the Collingwood Book Festival. So have some more wine. Maybe pick a grape and taste it, before, you know, so you know what's going on out there. And, and have fun oh, for yeah. the next few days before you come home. In fact, that Q&A thing, I'm going to do some of the queuing too. And I'm going to say to you, what was the worst moment you had with Howard Askin? So come out to the Collingswood Book Festival. You work together for years. Oh, that's an easy one. 
That's a no, story. Well, so I, have, I'll be able to tell it. All right. Well, good, Mike, they got to come out to the book festival on Saturday to hear it. How's that sound? Sounds good. <laughs> Angelo, thank you. Enjoy your Mike. vacation. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Bye. All right, Angelo. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Mike Bissinelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.